Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist Bruce Dormany, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, The Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, and a Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to episode 14 of Cosmic Controversy. Today on the podcast, I'm excited to welcome planetary geophysicist Julie Castillo-Roger, NASA's Dawn Mission Project Scientist at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Castillo is an expert on small icy bodies within the solar system, including the dwarf planet Ceres, the large asteroid Pallas, and Mars's moons of Deimos and Phobos. We'll be discussing whether Ceres harbors microbial life in a frozen undersea ocean and a potential series sample return. Originally from France, Castillo was awarded her doctorate in planetary geophysics from the University of Nantes in 2001. And a decade later, she received JPL's Lou Allen Award for Early Career Scientists. Castillo even has an asteroid named in her honor, asteroid Castillo-Roger 11274-1997XX. So... It's fitting that most of our conversation today will be about asteroids. Castillo joins us from Altadena, California. Julie, welcome to Cosmic Controversy. Hi, Bruce. Thanks much for the invite. Happy to be here. Glad you're here. So, uh, first of all, for, for listeners, let's just kind of define the terms. What's an asteroid and how does an asteroid differ from a comet? So that's a great question uh, because... Like 50 years ago, the, these terms were very distinct. Uh, asteroids were objects that were uh, located between um, the orbits of Mars and of Jupiter. And, uh, and they were lo- located there. They were uh, considered old, old objects, small. Uh, the largest asteroid is Ceres. It's about 1,000 kilometers across. Um, and they were considered extremely primitive and the building blocks of the planets. And the comets, they were uh, considered very, uh, as very different objects uh, coming from far out from the solar system uh, and active. They are characterized by a tail uh, that is made of dust and gas uh, and they are recognizable by their activity. But in the past decade, these terms they are the distinction between these terms is getting blurry because we have found comets in the main belt of asteroids. Uh, we call them main belt comets. They show a little bit of activity, and we think that they are asteroids that are activated by small impacts and that create dust plumes. And there is probably a lot of uh, gas involved as well. And we also think that there are a lot of old comets uh, that have just lost their activities, have lost their gas, and uh, they are uh, stored in the asteroid belt. And so there is kind of a continuum between the definition of an asteroid now and the definition of a comet. So you're actually saying that there are old kind of uh, comets that have lost their oomph, that, have, that, have, that are no longer active. Uh, located in the main asteroid belt between the Mars and Jupiter. Yeah, okay. most probably, yeah. So tell us about the origin of NASA's Dawn mission, named because its mission was to take us to two of the oldest intact bodies in the solar system, the asteroids Vesta and Ceres, the latter which has now been reclassified 
as the Dwarf Planet series. First of all, let's just address that one. Uh, why was series reclassified as a dwarf planet? So in 2006, the International Astronomical Union uh, weighed in on the classification of Pluto and of Ceres. Um, because at the time, the, the, the two missions, New Horizons and Dawn, were under development. And Pluto in particular uh, was the subject of a lot of discussions because it was a planet. And, but it's smaller than the regular planets, and it's part of the Kuiper belt. Um, and Ceres is part of the main belt. So these objects, they uh, have in common that they are not alone in the part of the, of the sky. They share space with a bunch of other objects. And so the question was raised uh, as to their uh, status of planet. And um, so what defines a, a planet is that it should be uh, relaxed to a spherical uh, shape uh, and also that they should have cleared their neighborhood so that there is basically no other objects in their vicinity. And uh, because Pluto and Ceres are both part of uh, belts, of uh, that, that contained a lot of objects. Uh, they were downgraded to the st status of dwarf planet. So t the Dawn mission was to investigate these two very old bodies. So uh, why are Vesta and Ceres better solar system time capsules than our own moon, for instance? Yeah, so that's a great question. When the Dawn mission was defined, and that dates back to the early 90s, actually it was proposed uh, three times, uh, the goal was really to go to uh, protoplanets or large building blocks of the early solar system. And uh, the, the asteroids in the main belt, so Vesta, Ceres, and so on, they formed within a few million years after the beginning of the solar system. So if the idea was uh, we've done is that when we explore these objects, we can really get a, a glimpse of what the, the early solar system looked like. The moon is also a time capsule because it has recorded impacts that happened not very early on in the solar system, but a few hundred million years later, uh, when the giant planets started moving with respect to each other, and when they uh, get in resonance with each other, they can disrupt uh, belts of uh, remnant asteroids and planetesimals. And, so, and that results in scattering uh, these small asteroids and planetesimals into the, the inner solar system. And so these objects, the moon and, and, and the asteroids, are all interesting because they tell us about different uh, periods of the, of the solar system. But what you're saying is that the, these, uh, these uh, primordial asteroids are even older than the moon. And the moon was, yeah. and the moon dates back to what is it four point one four point two billion years ago? Uh, it's not clear. Uh, the moon was created from a big impact, right? Uh, That's right. Yes. Uh, with Earth, and it's a few hundred million years after the Earth's formation. So set the scene for us after a, after a spacecraft like Dawn is launched to an asteroid. How, how is uh, sending a spacecraft to an asteroid different than sending a spacecraft on a flyby mission to a planet, for instance? The big difference is that most asteroids, they are uh, small. 
and in particular when we are talking about a mission to a near-Earth asteroid, so an object that is about one kilometer in size or less, uh, navigation is more complicated uh, because the object is detected uh, last, oh, I mean, relatively late in the mission. So that is a big difference uh, between going to Mars and, and going to a near-Earth asteroid, for example. But you're using, uh, the, but when you're oh, when you're actually navigating to a small body, you are still using celestial navigation, you know, correct? <laughs> Yeah, so you're always using a combination of two techniques. One is uh, ranging and tracking with uh, the deep space network uh, on Earth, uh, working with the radio in the spacecraft. And when the target uh, becomes uh, is resolved, or, or when the spacecraft gets relatively close to the target uh, and is detectable in the camera of the spacecraft, so in, a, uh, so, in, so in other words, when we can actually see, when actually the ground controllers can can see the target uh, in the camera. Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah, exactly. Sorry, I got too complicated. Yeah, so when, <laughs> no, right. when the spacecraft can see the target, then we can start what we call optical navigation. And uh, so we look at where the target is in the, in the camera and, and with respect to the star field. And we combine that information with uh, tracking from the ground in order to prepare for the approach and the flyby or the orbit insertion. Well, what would we see if we were actually in a spacecraft approaching such an asteroid, uh, Ceres, for instance, or Vesta? What would the view look like? So in other words, would we initially just see a field of stars and would, the, would our field of view be just overwhelmed by all the stars that we would see uh, until finally it was not our field of view was dominated by a big space rock the asteroid yeah so it really depends on the size of the object cirrus is a good example because it was detected in the uh, camera of the dawn spacecraft 10 million kilometers away and actually um, we have recorded these images and they are posted on the dawn website uh, and so we have images of taken regularly every week uh, between the very early detection of Ceres and until orbit insertion. And so, so it's interesting because Ceres is such a big object that, uh, I mean, first to detect it, you just see one pixel illuminated with Ceres. But then as we get closer, we see more and more details. Uh, in, in the picture, and especially at some point, we see the bright spots, uh, the the bright deposits of salts uh, that makes Ceres so fascinating. Right. Okay. Uh, so the thing that's uh, that's most shocking about Ceres, and and uh, you write or it's been written, it's a fact that the uh, that Ceres is the most water-rich body in the inner solar system after Earth, and I just thought to myself, wow. I mean, that's amazing because, you know, we've learned that Mars has apparently a lot of subsurface ice, water ice, not just carbon dioxide ice. Uh, and uh, the moon, you know, the paradigm has shifted on water on the moon. I mean, when I was a kid, no one thought the, the moon really had any water at all, except maybe in the permanently shaded, shaded craters uh, at, at the poles. But uh, now that paradigm has shifted even for the moon. So it's amazing that a body as small as Ceres can have even more water than the moon or Mars. 
Yeah, so uh, that makes Cyrus <laughs> very fascinating. And that is telling us that Cyrus is probably out of place. So talking about the uh, water on the moon, uh, it's most likely uh, water that was provided by comets impacting the moon. Uh, because we think that early on in the solar system, there was this big migration of water-rich materials from the outer solar system. And, uh, and they provided a, a huge amount of um, ice to the moon. And Ceres was probably part of uh, these migrated objects. And so it, it might be proof of, of that migration, although we need to, to go back and, and measure that. You told me uh, actually in, uh, in an article I did in Forbes, you said, uh, quote, uh, Ceres is likely out of place and probably formed the outer solar system. And you said if Ceres migrated inward, that implies that other icy asteroids migrated from giant planet regions and were the main source of water to Earth. But that water, the, the, the origin of Earth's water is still debated. Yeah, it's debated. There are three sources. There are these icy asteroids. Uh, there are comets as another possible source. Uh, and it's possible that Earth also got uh, a little part of its water from the region where it formed. But the, uh, the bottom line is and everybody who is interested in life beyond Earth or potential life in our, our solar system beyond low Earth orbit is interested in Ceres as a potential uh, target of astrobiological interest. And in fact, you were one of the first researchers, researchers to propose that Ceres might have been continuously habitable. And to make this distinction, you're not saying it had life or does have life. You're just saying that the, the way it formed commencing uh, directly after accretion with a global ocean, which could have been maintained for billions of years under a frozen surface, you're saying that because of this, Ceres may have been and may still be habitable underneath the, the, the frozen surface. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So we, we are now we know from the Dawn mission that uh, Ceres indeed has uh, a structure that is similar to the, an internal structure that is similar to the internal structure uh, found at icy moons. Um, and so we also know from its surface composition that it was subject to um, uh, interaction uh, of rock with uh, liquid water for some time on on a global scale. Uh, that is another evidence for the existence of a global ocean early on. The big question is uh, how long did that ocean persist? Uh, because we have evidence, and it, that's a very recent uh, result from the Dawn mission, we have evidence that there is uh, a large body of liquid inside Ceres at present. We don't know if the liquid is on a global scale, um, but at least we, we think that there's been some liquid water inside Ceres from its formation and until present. And so you told me in Forbes that the ocean had to be below a crust because with no atmosphere, water would not have been stable on its surface and thus the early interior of Ceres was akin to the icy moons, as you mentioned, Europa and Enceladus, but with an ocean sandwiched between a core made up of rocky material and an ice-rich crust. Yeah, that's what uh, that's the picture that we have of Ceres at the end of the Dawn mission, and we have a, a lot of evidence that this is a correct picture. 
And then uh, the other two surprises are that Ceres has had volcanic activity, but not the kind of volcanism that we know on Earth, but it's cryogenic. Yes, we have uh, evidence in two places for um, cryovolcanic activity. Uh, one is in the form of a mountain. It's called Hauna Mountain. What's very cool about that mountain is that it's uh, four kilometers uh, tall. Uh-huh. And uh, so in order to put that amount of material uh, on the surface of Ceres, liquid uh, was involved. But on top of that, we have a geophysical signature that the source of that mountain is below the crust. It's from some residual liquid uh, inside Ceres. And that's uh, the 4,000 meter high. Did you say 4,000 meter high? It's an ice, mm-hmm. vo- ice volcano, Ahunamans. Uh, yeah. which uh, was uh, apparently active within, the, you estimate, within the last 100 million years. Okay, now how, do you, how can you date that? How can you say that? <laughs> because nobody, a, uh, nobody was around. Come on. Now, you, <laughs> that's a great question. That's the source of uh, endless debate. Uh, because we, I mean, there are two ways to date features uh, on on a body. When the only thing you can have, the only information you have is images from a spacecraft. Um, one is uh, using the amount of craters and their distribution on the surface of the body. And uh, we can use that uh, f- frequency um, of the different types of craters in order uh, and compare it against a model. And usually we use the moon as a model uh, in order to have a relative age. So that's one way to, uh, to get some general uh, idea of the, an edge of the surface on, on a body. Uh, but of course, there are a lot of errors associated with that because our models they are not perfectly well calibrated. Uh, we are missing um, absolute dating that you would get on Earth if you could uh, measure uh, material from the object. Um, the other technique is to look at the level of brightness of uh, the objects. And in particular, uh, at, uh, on Ceres, there is Okator crater with its very bright deposits. Um, they have a brightness that is telling us that they are very recent. We are talking about less than 20 million years and probably less than a few million years. Uh, just because if they were older, uh, with time, the surface accumulates micrometeorites, and so they just dar- the surface darkens. So then there's another uh, area, a crater on uh, Ceres, Okada Crater, that was also active even more recently, cryogenically, uh, with the cryogenic volcanism. And that was within the last uh, 10 million years. Yeah, that's the coolest feature on Ceres, in my personal opinion, um, because it displays uh, salts. Uh, and in many places, in about a dozen of places, uh, and these salts, they have to be sourced from um, a deep uh, brine reservoir. And in fact, the existence of these deposits are the strong, is a, sorry, they are the strongest uh, piece of evidence for the presence of liquid inside Ceres at present. Right. And at one point you told me in an article, uh, so the, the brine would have come from the interior. You said that, uh, you told me that 
that series may have had a mud ball interior, <laughs> which I, which is totally unexpected. I mean, a mud ball interior that could have persisted over billions of years. And so would that be perhaps where this briny material could have come from, the, the mud ball interior? Yeah, we are trying to figure this out. Uh, the mud ball in, in interior model is debated. Just it's very, very difficult to model. What we know is that because uh, the Dawn uh, spacecraft got very uh, fine uh, geophysical observations, what we know is that the density of the residual ocean or the, the brine uh, reservoir is very high. So it's liquid that is uh, loaded in rock particles. And, and so I think that presenting this as a mud uh, is an accurate description. But now whether this mud um, existed throughout the uh, history of Ceres is something that is not understood. Arguably the most interesting thing about Ceres is the Inutet crater uh, which has been mm-hmm. discovered to have organic molecules uh, that have been found in abundance. Uh, you have written, Organics are among the building blocks of life, though Dawn's data can't determine if Ceres' organics were formed by biological processes. You note that the evidence for organics in Inutet came from Ceres' interior, in which case they would have existed for some time in the early interior ocean. So, uh, how do you know that they came from the interior, though? Yeah, so this um, understanding of the origin of organics is really not settled. Um, it's very possible that the organics uh, were supplied by a cometary impact, for example, or uh, by a collision with another asteroid in, in the main belt. Uh, but what we also uh, know from the Dawn observation is that there is uh, about 20% of carbon in the surface of Ceres. And that carbon could be uh, in large part used in organics. Uh, uh, so even if the ernutet organics don't belong to Ceres, we, we know that there, there are a lot of organic compounds. On but, Ceres. but organic doesn't necessarily mean life. I mean, let, let, let's be clear. Just because yeah, you're... that's right. Yeah. Okay, all right. Yeah, but so this is why we've kind of done as much as we can, you know, surveying. Not well, not as much as we can, but we've done. You've done. A, you guys did a great job in surveying a, a series. But uh, you think the next step in series exploration would be a proposed NASA sample return mission? And uh, I, I believe I did a, a story for Forbes on on a Gauss mission that would can't, uh, collect samples and return them to Earth in cryogenic conditions that would preserve the volatile and organic composition as well as the original physical status as much as possible. And you mentioned to me before we taped that uh, while Gauss is uh, still a, pro- uh, a, a priority, there's an, also a competing sample return mission proposal. Can you tell us about those two and and? And when do you think a sample return might happen? GOS is um, a concept that has been proposed to uh, the European Space Agency. Uh, they are working on. So, their uh, so I'm totally wrong. It's not. <laughs> it's not a NASA mission. It's an ESA mission. Oh, 
Is that right? Yeah, so it's the above, right? Ah, uh, okay. The is for ISA, and, and it turns out that NASA is also looking at a sample return mission uh, to Ceres. And but just to be clear, the, the Gauss proposal is uh, from the European Space Agency, and then NASA is itself looking for uh, looking into its own sample return mission? Or are, are ESA and, Na and NASA going to work together on this? Yes, that's a great question. We define two concepts for the future exploration of Ceres. One is a hopper, a lander that could go to multiple sites on Ceres um, and perform in situ measurement of the chemistry, the mineralogy. And, uh, and then there is a sample return mission uh, concept uh, that works very nicely for a relatively low cost. So we uh, sent our report to NASA uh, three weeks ago. So in parallel to this, ESA is conducting a similar exercise. And uh, last year, so there was this uh, a series of white papers and, and the Gauss mission uh, was proposed. So Gauss is more complicated than the concepts that we've developed on the uh, U.S. side, because uh, as you noted, Bruce, uh, the proposal is to bring back uh, samples in cryogenic state and preserving the structure and so on. But that is ex extremely expensive. When we did the <laughs> uh, study on the U.S. side, we, we, we did not find a good reason uh, for preserving the sample in cryogenic conditions. And we thought that um, a and, sample and, return capsule like the one uh, used by Osiris-Rex would be sufficient. And in lay terms, uh, preserving cryogenic conditions simply means uh, in an icy state. <laughs> Is that right? You're, in other words, you're bringing a, a sample that's an ice sample back from Ceres. Is, that's, that would be preserved in an icy in a cryogenic uh, condition. Is that right? Yeah. So Gauss uh, targets multiple places on Ceres, and that includes ice, icy sites. Okay, uh, so we'd be, we'd be bringing ice back from, from Ceres, essentially. That's what Gauss is doing. On, on the U.S. side, we are focusing on the salts in Okator Crater. Neither mission is uh, is funded at this point. Uh, there's still, uh, you're in the, in the phase A studies or the concept studies for, for both. Uh, but you don't, what you're, what you're telling me is, if I'm hearing you correctly, is that although ESA and NASA are both interested in sample return missions to Ceres, uh, neither has funded uh, funded one, and uh, there's no there at this point no plan to you know, work together on a mission, an ESA joint uh, NASA ESA mission. Is that right? Yeah, that is, yeah, that is correct. So I mean, getting a mission uh, <laughs> from a concept paper uh, to flight, it's a very long process. And so first we need to um, know what um, the Academy of Science in the U.S. is going to recommend in the decadal survey. Hopefully they pick a serious mission, which would be ideal. Um, and then what we would do is compete uh, for that mission. So it's not because it's highlighted in the decadal survey that uh, NASA is necessarily going to uh, implement it. We need to, to send a proposal and several NASA centers would send a proposal and, uh, and compete for that mission. And ob obviously there are a lot of very, very cool targets in the solar system. So CRS would be competing against other targets. Um, so on the ESA site, uh, I believe they are going to um, release their own decadal survey uh, next spring or next summer. Uh, 
and uh, and let's say that both the US and the uh, European Space Agency are interested in a future serious mission. Uh, then when the teams uh, prepare their proposals, that's where they are. Uh, we're going to start discussing collaborations. Right. Well, it, it makes sense because we're looking, that would probably be at least a billion dollar mission, right? Yeah, correct. Okay. So it's not, uh, it's not pocket change, but it's, <laughs> it, <you know. laughs> but, uh, it's, it's not undoable. Anyway, um, so a sample return mission would answer questions about the origin of series and the origin and transfer of water and other volatiles into the inner solar system, and also the physical properties and internal structure of Ceres, and if it was habitable or, or is still habitable, does it have that capacity to, to determine whether Ceres actually has life or had life? Yes, absolutely. Uh, by uh, sampling the salt Sinocator crater, uh, we can have direct information about the state of the uh, liquid reservoir below the crust of Ceres. And what we also hope is that the salt grains would contain uh, species, materials that are uh, floating in the ocean. Um, and in fact, uh, like more than a decade ago, uh, the meteoricists, they found um, grains of salt in, in uh, meteorites. And they analyzed this grain of salts. There are only two samples that have been found in the collections. And they found a lot of different species in, in these salt grains. Okay. Uh, yeah, they found organics, they found all types of minerals. And they even found liquid, uh, fluids, uh, gas. And I found that was very exciting. And that is a reference for our mission. So another thing the a sample return mission would do would be to de definitively determine where Ceres actually formed and how its formation location relates to the current debate over where Earth got its water. And as you told me in For uh, Forbes, and you just mentioned, we need to sample spots where the oceans, where the ocean beneath the surface may have extruded on on Ceres. And a prime spot to test this idea would be at the Ahuna, at the Ahunamans volcanic mountain where enough uh, volcanic activity may have, coughed up, may have coughed up some small portion of Ceres' ancient ocean. That's what you were just referencing, right? Yeah, except that when we did that study for NASA, uh, Mission Concept Study, we realized that it's very difficult to access Hounamans. Uh, the slopes of the mountains, they are like... 40 degrees, and, and so we found out that it was not accessible, and that's where we decided to go to Okator Crater. A Kator Crater is more likely to be the site that you would actually sample. Yeah, so in order to keep the mission relatively low cost, um, we uh, concluded that we could do the mission in a, with a single uh, flight element. So we get to Ceres, uh, we have the orbiter, as you described, we find a landing site, and then we land the entire spacecraft. And we can do that because the gravity of Ceres is relatively small. It's uh, about 35 times less than the Earth's gravity. And uh, we could pack enough propellant to land uh, the full spacecraft and then to take off. Then the, the, the full spacecraft gets back to Earth. And by doing that, we can have a, a sample return mission that takes only 13 years. Okay, so uh, 
the mission would likely, any sort of mission would not launch until 2033. And then you're saying it would take 13 years to get there. Oh, yeah, 13 years, the round trip. So it will take about 6.5 years to get there. Um, we spend, spend a bit of time doing landing site reconnaissance. We pick the sample and it takes about six years to come back. So the best case scenario, even if it's funding by 2033, even if it launches by 2033, is that we're not really going to know anything. We're not going to solve this series uh, issue about life probably until mid-century. Right. And I hope I will still be alive. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sure you will. I hope I'll still be alive. Okay. <laughs> so, so what uh, puzzles you most about about the plant, the Dwarf Planet series? Probably the existence of liquid huh? uh, is uh, a focus right now uh, because it has a lot of implications. If an object small like Ceres and with little heat, it has no tidal heating like the moons of Jupiter and Saturn. Uh, if an object like that could preserve liquid until present, it means that many other objects uh, could also preserve liquid. And I'm thinking of objects in the Kuiper Belt. In the, uh, in the Kuiper Belt, which is uh, just beyond the... Actually, Pluto is a Kuiper Belt object, uh, <laughs> technically, the dwarf planet uh, Pluto. And uh, explain what the Kuiper Belt is. It's just a kind of a reservoir of uh, planetary debris left over from the formation of our solar system. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, it's probably similar to the main belt. You have this, uh, the main belt of asteroids, you have these reservoirs of, uh, of building blocks of, um, of the planets and probably the Kuiper belt objects are remnant building blocks of um, the giant planets uh, okay. that were scattered away early on. Okay. And, the, and then Vesta, which was another target which uh, Dawn mission, the Dawn mission orbited. Or was it a flyby or did, did you actually did orbit uh, Vesta, right? Yeah. Okay. And Vesta is the second largest uh, asteroid in the solar system. Uh, is that correct? Yes. And technically classified as an asteroid, but it has a a mountain at the center of an enormous basin, now called Rhea Silvia. Uh, Dawn's mapping showed it to be twice the height of Mount Everest, and it revealed canyons that rival the, the Grand Canyon in size. I mean, that, that just seems incredible that such a small body could have that kind of topography. How is that yeah. possible? So, uh, the smaller the, the objects, because Vesta is about half the size of Ceres, so the smaller the objects, the more likely they are to uh, retain topography because they lose, they lose their heat faster. So Vesta was probably called you know, a few tens or maybe 100 million years after its formation. And so big impact, um, like this mountain formation on the South Pole or the fractures, were not relaxed uh, as a consequence of a late stage of warming. Okay. It's the reason, yeah, and so it's the reason why Vesta is not uh, a spherical body uh, and it's not classified as a planet. It's because it got cold too early and, and it's retained a lot of its geological history on the surface. Okay. And then Pallas uh, is the solar system's third largest and wholly unexplored asteroid. Uh, it's a target, though, for a potential small sat NASA flyby mission for possible launch in 2022. 
and uh, it's the largest unexplored planetary body inside the orbit of Neptune, as I noted in a Forbes piece uh, from last year. Uh, but it does not likely come from the same region of the solar system as Ceres, you told me. So we had um, a breakthrough in the observation of Pallas uh, last year because it was observed by the very large telescope. There is a team in, uh, in Europe uh, led by um, uh, Pierre Vernazza in France uh, that uh, imaged and uh, resolved the surface of uh, many asteroids. And especially for Pallas, we got really, really cool images. So we were able to do geological observations of Pallas from the ground. Uh, and what we found is that Pallas does not have ice uh, in its surface or su subsurface. And that is a very big difference to Ceres. We know Ceres has a lot of ice, a lot of water. And so for Pallas, either this means that it comes indeed from a very different region uh, from the solar system uh, compared to Ceres, or maybe it lost its ice in a big collision. So that's another uh, possibility. And you said yes, that, you told me that uh, if Pallas ever had an ocean, it lost it quickly. Uh, and, and why would that be? So we, we think that uh, erosion uh, of the, the outer layers of asteroids was a common process uh, in the asteroid belt. So it's possible that yeah, Pallas had an ocean, but it was subject to a lot of impacts, and the impacts removed uh, that outer layer of liquid and, and ice. And so do you think that Pallas may even be older than Vesta or Ceres? It's inclined to the plane of our solar system's uh, ecliptic, which means it doesn't lie on the same plane as the rest of the planets and main belt asteroids, which does make it a bit more difficult to get to. Is that is that why we haven't surveyed Pallas as yet, uh, or anyone has surveyed Pallas as yet with a flyby mission? Yeah, it makes it very difficult, the, the fact that uh, its orbit is very inclined. And so we, we had this mission concept for launch in 2022, and, but the proposal was not selected and we are revisiting uh, this concept. We, we realized that we cannot get to Pallas anymore in the near term. Um, and same when Dawn was proposed in the 90s, Pallas was one of the targets. But then, you know, it, it's not accessible on a regular basis. So let's switch gears and talk a bit about the uh, first interstellar object, uh, Oumuamua. Uh, which mm -hmm. was discovered in October of 2017. It's a few hundred meters in size, appears to be elongated with faint outgassing, uh, which causes a, a somewhat strange anomalous orbit. Um, is there any possibility that this, this thing has gotten a lot of attention? I've written about it. Everybody and their brother has written about it. <laughs> uh, I've seen so many articles on Oumuamua, my eyes are, are starting to glaze over. <laughs> I think people are making their careers over this thing now. So uh, Avi Loeb at Harvard has repeatedly said that its odd outgassing is bizarre for an asteroid or comet. So, so what are your thoughts? Is, are, is there any possibility that this is some sort of alien artificial probe? <laughs> no. <laughs> I think it, there is zero chance that it is. And um, 
so we, we have some data on Oumuamua, but we have to take them with a grain of salt. Um, it's true that you know there is something strange in the orbit, but we don't have enough information to, to draw any conclusion. And, uh, but I'm pretty sure it's not <laughs> an alien spacecraft. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, uh, yeah, okay. So anyway, uh, but interstellar visitors are interesting because they would probably be more than likely ejecta from extrasolar planetary systems during the process of planet formation. From uh, Aside from the novelty of just finding an interstellar object, and the problem with Oumuamua was that, you know, it was unexpectedly found. Uh, there was no spacecraft in position to track it. Uh, we didn't launch a spacecraft to go after it. And even if it, even if we could have, we probably would not have been able to catch it because it was traveling pretty fast. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. We are looking at that right now at JPL. Uh, that's a big topic of focus. Uh, you know, how can we explore an object like Oumuamua uh, that comes from nowhere? Right. Uh, that was detected after uh, its closest passage to the sun, and it's going really, really fast. Uh, and that is a, a very interesting challenge. We have a team at JPL looking at uh, possibilities right now. But uh, aside from catching it, um, so could such interstellar objects offer the process of panspermia, you know, literally harboring the building blocks of life, amino acids of life, uh, inside, inside the uh, asteroid itself, and then spreading it from, ex- uh, spreading it from solar system to solar system. Yeah, that's a very intriguing uh, possibility, and it was suggested after the discovery of Oumuamua. Uh, we think that there are a lot of these objects that have been wandering since the very uh, beginning of the solar system. And so it's definitely a possibility. Something that has not been looked at in detail is um, so, uh, how, how molecules uh, of life, how are they going to survive an impact at 100 kilometers per second? Um, it's possible that they could survive, but I don't think it's been uh, looked at in detail. So you would not uh, bet on uh, on uh, panspermia from an interstellar standpoint. That's probably not the best way for life to to form or propagate. It's probably not. Uh, the probability would be smaller, I would say, but it definitely deserves more attention because that discovery of um, interstellar objects, it's, you know, it's really, really fascinating. It, it just opens up a bunch of new um, research avenues. And so uh, definitely, definitely I would not fool out panspermia. I just feel like it needs to be uh, investigated in more detail. If the next generation of ground-based telescopes can detect interstellar asteroids or comets, just as you mentioned, you said that you, that you at JPL are are discussing how to rendezvous with them. Uh, what about uh, you know these very long period comets? Because some of them we know a lot of them, like Halley's comet was a considered a long period comet with a period of what seventy five years? Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, but a lot of these uh, long period comets uh, that originate from the outer Oort cloud, which is about almost a a light year away, we don't really, we don't even know a lot of them. We haven't even identified a lot. Is that right? 
Yeah, so these are uh, very interesting, the odd cloud comets. So there are various classes of comets. There are the short period comets uh, with a period of a few years. And um, this, we think they are related to the Kuiper belt. They might originate from the Kuiper belt. And they come to the sun very frequently. So they have lost a lot of their original uh, gas, uh, gas volatiles uh, species. Uh, but the Oort cloud comets, uh, they were formed farther away from the sun. We think they came from the very edge of uh, the solar nebula early on. And they were scattered very far away. As, as you said, it's uh, almost a light year away. So they could tell us about the composition of the early solar system in, the, in its coldest regions. Okay. And they have a lot of gas. All right. So uh, we're, we're coming getting close to the end of the podcast, but I have a few questions left. And let's talk a bit about the Martian moon of Phobos because uh, there was a, a, a Phobos surveyor mission study. And what's the status on that, on that study? Yeah, a few years ago, uh, there were multiple proposals to NASA uh, uh, to go to, uh, to Phobos and Deimos. Uh, Mars over Moon, but the Japanese space agency is uh, now developing a mission uh, called Mars Moon Explorer that is supposed to launch in 2024, uh, arrives uh, in the Martian system in 2025 and return a sample uh, before 2030. And so because uh, uh, the Japanese space agency is pursuing that mission, uh, NASA is teaming up with uh, with them, which is great. Uh, I think there is at least one NASA instrument on that mission, and there are several scientists. So this is fun. So, this is a funded mission that's going to launch in 2024, return in 2025. That's a quick turnaround. And are oh, they? No, no, it, go ahead. It arrives at Mars. Sorry, it arrives at Mars in 2025, and it would return a sample in 2029. Uh, so the current plan is to uh, land the spacecraft on uh, Phobos and yeah, and sample. And, yeah. and then return by 2029, and that's a yeah. this is a done deal. This is a, this is financed uh, by the Japanese, and NASA has a couple of instruments, and so we can look forward to this. Yeah, absolutely. I would just say with COVID nineteen, there might be some delay, uh, but otherwise the mission has been developing very nicely, uh, from what I've heard. Okay, so, and we I mentioned these uh, two objects because they are technically. Most people think that they were actually captured asteroids by Mars, and uh, so if it, and we don't really know for certain whether they were formed from an, an impactor that blew out the material which accreted in in Mars's orbit, or actually they were gravitationally captured uh, captured by by Mars. Um, where do you, where do you stand on that? Do you think they were? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it's a long debate. I mean, it just it, we, we've been debating this with colleagues for a while, and so it could be either. I think the current interest in uh, the current focus is more that um, there was a big impact on Mars, uh, and that created a disk of material, and Phobos and Deimos formed from accretion within the disk. So that's the current thinking, and so this means Phobos and Deimos could be mostly formed from Mars material. And so this is actually a similar mechanism to the one that formed our moon, although, you know, basically the, the impactor that formed our moon was a Mars-sized impactor known as Thea. 
uh, planetary scientists have named Thea. And uh, but basically, it blew our our nascent uh, Earth apart, and and uh, the material that accreted in Earth orbit became our Moon. The the and what you're saying is the the paradigm for the formation of Deimos and Phobos is a, a similar process, but on a much smaller scale. Yeah, uh, it's uh, been suggested that an object of the size of Ceres uh, could have uh, impacted Mars. Ah, okay, that's interesting. Okay, so if it turns out that Phobos is made up of ejected material from the planet Mars itself, uh, it would be a lot easier to simply return a sample from Phobos than from Mars, uh, which is what you you had mentioned to me in a Forbes piece. So is that true? I mean, could you can you use Phob- a, a sample from Phobos if it turns out that 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 Phobos's uh, material did originate on Mars? Can you use Phobos as a proxy for a return sample from Mars? Yeah, so that's a good question. For a life search mission, which is really the, the main interest of the Mars program, um, it's not clear that Phobos would be acceptable. Uh, and the Mars 2020 mission that launched like just one month ago uh, is going to collect sample uh, for uh, sample return in the long term. And uh, the scientists on that mission, they picked a very nice uh, landing site uh, that is known to potentially have been habitable. So, so the big difference with Phobos is that Phobos, we don't know exactly where the material came from, could have come from a, a region that was not really interesting for life search mission. And then you note that if Phobos is found to contain water ice hundreds of feet under the surface, that could be a big boost to herma, uh, human exploration there, since such uh, H2O could be used to make both rocket fuel and, and, and uh, oxygen for life support, for water and life support. Uh, so some people think it's a possibility. I'm not exactly in that area, so I, I don't know the state of the technology of in-situ resource utilization at this stage. I, I think that, yes, there is still interest in, in, doing, uh, in, in doing that using uh, water on Phobos or on asteroids and turn that into propellant. I'm just not sure um, the level, about the level of maturity okay. of these technologies. So what's the future of robotic missions to asteroids and comets and tiny moons is there a better way of doing things that, that that we simply aren't doing? Yeah, it's we are just at the beginning of new type of exploration uh, using a small spacecraft. So uh, over the past decade, there, there has been an evolution in um, how we develop spacecraft. We've been developing smaller instruments. Uh, smaller uh, computers for space and and so on. And it is possible that in the next decade, it will be will be able to send small spacecraft to many different types of uh, asteroids and comets. Uh, that would help a lot with increasing our exploration of these objects at relatively low cost. How can we speed up travel times to and from these small bodies in a way that isn't being done now? Is, is it a question of more money or just more innovation? So, so yeah, I, I was fascinated by your question uh, because yeah, it could be more money. Like for example, if we launched the Ceres 
uh, mission that I mentioned on a space launch system, the uh, big rocket that NASA is working on. Then that would cut the, the travel time significantly and um, more by more than half. And so, but the problem is that it would make that kind of mission extremely expensive uh, using uh, this very huge rocket for a relatively small spacecraft. And so um, there is a, uh, the innovation uh, direction that, that um, I ask a few colleagues around, a few technologists at JPL about uh, that aspect. And they say that... Um, they are developing, or with their colleagues, they are developing a propulsion that is more efficient, uh, especially high-power electric propulsion and nuclear electric propulsion uh, that would be more efficient. And especially for a future mission to Pluto, for example, and the Kuiper Belt, uh, a nuclear electric propulsion could cut the travel time. Okay. So uh, how is the COVID, uh, you mentioned it about you know, potentially affecting this uh, Mars mission, how is uh, COVID affecting NASA's robotic missions at the moment? So it's variable um, for the missions that are urgent. And so Mars 2020 is an example. Uh, everything was done to make this mission, uh, that mission happen. And Mars 2020 launched uh, on time. And that was great. But I know it's been a lot of work from a logistics standpoint. Uh, to ensure that uh, the Mars 2020 uh, team could uh, keep working at JPL while being safe, safe from COVID. Uh, for the missions that are lower priorities, um, there, there is going to be some delay. Um, and so it's just yeah, mission dependent. And so what got you interested in, in planetary science? Uh, when did you personally decide that it would be your life's work? So I, I was a geologist at the university. Uh, and I come from uh, Nantes in France, in Brittany. And uh, that I started my uh, graduate study just when a new planetary laboratory was created. It was really just a coincidence uh, that I stud started my studies at that time. And uh, the lead of that group was working on the Cassini mission. And he organized a big uh, meeting uh, for the Cassini mission, and I got involved just helping with logistics. And I met another scientist. At that point, I was invited to come to JPL, uh, interview for a postdoctoral uh, research, and, and that's how I started at JPL. And and you've been at JPL for uh, over ten years. Almost twenty years. Twenty years. Good <laughs> I gosh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay, great. Finally. What does a, a planetary geophysicist think about when looking up into a star-filled sky? In other words, are, are you uh, uh, looking at the stars like, like uh, most casual observers, or do you see uh, asteroids you know, in your mind's eye? Are you, are you wondering, you know, where is Vesta, where is Pallas, where is uh, whatever? Yes, yeah, so unfortunately in the Pasadena area, we don't have a good sky, there's a lot of light. But um, a few days ago, Ceres was closest to Earth. And so with my family, we looked for it. Um, so once in a while, we look for specific targets. Uh, what fascinates, fascinates me right now is you know, the interstellar objects. Could, there could be a lot of them. And... We need to look for them. And so that's what I think of when I look at the skies. Where are they? 
and, and um, how do we get to them? Uh, and I'm really working a lot with uh, JPL colleagues to de develop strategies to explore these objects. And so a uh, series you can actually look for with a, tel a small telescope uh, in your backyard? I didn't realize that. Yeah, so I was told that the Ceres was observable with uh, binoculars a few days ago, but uh, I mean, in my backyard, <laughs> I could not see anything. Julie, do you have a way that uh, listeners can contact you on social media? Yes, I am on Facebook, and I should be easy to find. Okay, so uh, you welcome comments and questions. Um, mm -hmm. As always, please follow Cosmic Controversy at brucedormany.podbean.com or at bdormany on my Twitter feed. Julie Castillo-Roger, let's hope that, <laughs> that we both live to see... A, a series sample return mission. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Thanks. Thanks for being a part of the podcast today. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was a pleasure. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormany. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at bdormany, or his regular posts on Forbes.com. Until next time, clear skies. Music provided by RFM. <laughs>